Welcome to episode one of Herpetological Highlights. I'm Ben Marshall and co-hosting this podcast with me is Tom Major. We aim to bring to you some, well, highlights in the world of herpetological research, bringing out things we find interesting and hopefully making them a little bit more approachable for the everyday herpetologist or herp enthusiast. Yeah, we're going to read a few papers every week and then we're going to sit and discuss them, try and make some sense of them. Hopefully we'll be able to. And um, yeah, generally there'll be a sort of theme for each week. And then at the end of each episode, we're going to highlight a newly discovered species, or maybe even two, which we find to be interesting. Ben, should we crack on with the first paper? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So our first paper today is uh, by Fan, Stuart Fox and Kadina. So a 2014 paper published in PLUS ONE, and it's to do with a cyclic colour change in bearded dragons under different photoperiods. Yep, so um, bearded dragons, Pagona viticeps, they're a really, really popular species actually, aren't they? Even amongst people who are only on the fringes of kind of herpetology, they're really, really commonly kept pets. And I actually think there's one in your house, isn't there? Exactly, they're, they're the go-to herp for... Well, anybody and everybody, really, aren't they? They're meant to be easy to keep, chilled. You'd have to really, really irritate one to get bitten by it. Lovely little creatures. Yeah, and they're called dragons as well, which kind of adds to their uh, <laughs> mystique. Probably a few people have been disappointed when their baby beardies didn't grow into actual dragons, but there oh, you go. You can't be disappointed in a bearded dragon. Fair point, fair point. So, um, bearded dragons. Pagona viticeps is actually the inland bearded dragon, They're omnivorous lizards from Australia, found in arid and semi-arid areas. If you were to look at a map of Australia, the range that these these lizards occupy is basically just a blob in the very centre. They're not found near the coast. They're strictly arid species. Yeah, proper desert species. Yeah, yeah, The heartland of Australia is where you're going to find them. What was the real point of this study? Well, basically, a lot of of creatures exhibit some level of colour change for some reason, and bearded dragons are no different. Yeah, there's generally, if you read a lot of literature about colour change and the science of it, there's really three primary reasons that yes. animals are found to change colour. Uh, these are camouflage, so hiding from their predators. Communication, so they change colour as a means of getting a signal across to another member of the species. And uh, the third one is thermoregulation, so they're changing colour for the purpose of either getting warmer or cooling down. Um, for a classic example of this would be animals that get darker to warm up. Probably I'm gonna, I'm gonna well, I'm gonna bring in the fourth one: color change to protect against UV radiation. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. An example of that would be uh, some types of smallmouthed salamander found in uh, Texas and southern southern United States who, if you expose them to larger doses of UV earlier in, earlier during their life, you get darker to counteract that, that level of radiation. Oh, okay, yeah. So I probably should have um, made myself a bit more clear. What I was talking about is physiological colour change, so colour change which is mediated in the short term by the animal itself. What you're talking about is morphological yes. colour change, where it's a fundamental change to the colour of the animal over a significant period of time. Yes. Those are kind of the, the two designations that you get for colour change. 
But you're absolutely right. I didn't know about those salamanders. That's They're really, cool little guys. That's really cool. Did you get the reference for that from this paper? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's uh, Garcia, Stacy, and Si in 2014. Larval salamander responses to UV radiation and predation risk, color change, and microhabitat use. Cool. That, that sounds... was a neat paper because they not only did the UV aspect, but the color change conflicted and sometimes complemented uh, predation risk, where that would also influence the fitness, survivability, and color of the tiny so, salamanders. So they were changing color to defend themselves from the sun at a cost of being eaten more often. Yeah, there was a balance between the two. So there's a trade-off. That's another thing, actually. I think in I think in some circumstances it was a trade-off, and mm. others there was a complementary aspect to it. Right. Okay. Cool. Because that's something else which um, is kind of a relatively new idea in the literature is that actually a lot of animals that can change colour, for example, chameleons and cuttlefish, are actually changing colour for all three reasons: mm. camouflage communication and thermoregulation and it's striking a balance where they can afford to do these things but they're not wasting energy on other things or making themselves too conspicuous by flashing bright colors to show off to their friends and getting eaten in the process yes yes it's always going to be a trade-off yeah but it's pretty cool color change science is really exciting exciting area so um back to the uh the bearded dragons their study used 11 wild-caught bearded dragons. They actually went out and caught them in the wild. They caught them in Alice Springs, um, or just outside Alice Springs, which is relatively central in Australia. It's pretty much slap bang in the middle, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Your Australian heartland. Uh, they used all males to ensure the sample was consistent because um, it could have been the case that females and males would respond differently to their treatments. Mm. It's difficult to say. There might be a reason for a different colour in males and females. Yes, and that discounts any differences of talking about colour trade-offs again. If you're dealing with bearded dragons during a certain time of year, or during breeding season specifically, that might be an additional signal getting in the way of your signal you want to investigate. Precisely. So they wanted to avoid their study being conflicted by any sexual dimorphism, which is just difference between males and females. Them being wild caught also meant that they could be sure that all the dragons were from the same locality, so they weren't accidentally measuring dragons from different areas which had adapted to their specific areas slightly, which is always a risk. If they'd yeah. got them from captivity, this is a really widely distributed species, and um, captive individuals could have bloodlines from absolutely everywhere. You've got no way of knowing where they were collected from. Yeah. So what did they find out then? Should we get into it? Yeah, I mean, they aimed to find out whether these bearded dragons have a... whether their colour change responds to a sort of circadian pattern, a, a day-in, day-out rhythmic change back and forth. They wanted to see, didn't they, if bearded dragons were different colours in the morning, afternoon and night was essentially what they wanted to do. Yes. That was their aim. Because changing colour through the course of the day could potentially convey some benefit to these animals. Yeah, be that... Well, I mean, they were primarily investigating thermoregulation. They're looking to measure the bearded dragon's reflectance of well, a really, really wide range of light. I mean, it ranged all the way from your UV all the way over to um, infrared. Yeah, They really covered the whole lot of things, which they remark a lot of previous papers have not done it as extensively. They've, they've honed in on one bit of the spectrum or another, which 
might not actually represent what the animal's reacting to, or at least what it's benefiting from. Definitely beneficial to use as, as multi-spectrum as you can in studies like this, because at the end of the day, they're receiving all the wavelengths of light yes. when they sit outside in the sun, yeah. especially if they're in particular areas of Australia with no ozone. They're really, <laughs> they're really getting the whole lot. They get full whack, yeah. yeah. Maybe a bit too much. <laughs> so yeah, well, they, they, they pretty much discovered, didn't they, that um, they did respond to light by reducing the reflectance of their skin meaning that less light was reflected back during the day. They were absorbing more light, um, so they were, they were darker during the day. Yes, and then that switched in the evening. Makes a lot of sense. Try and balance out and keep a relatively consistent body temperature as best you can. I mean, obviously, as an ectotherm, they've got no internal way of doing that, so thermoregulation is king for them. Yeah, the, the way that they actually do this, that they absorb more light, is by using the pigment melanin. Mm. Um, essentially they have cells inside their body called melanophores and these cells contain little bits of pigment pigment's just a protein that's dark and uh, when the melanin is spread thinly in these cells the lizards appear darker and when the melanin congregates in these cells the lizards look much lighter so they basically just spread out all the melanin in their cells go darker that darkness then allows them to absorb more radiation from the sun, seemingly heating them up. Yeah, and that's well, the really neat bit for me in this is that they're flexible about it. They're not. It's not like a baked-in circadian rhythm of 12 hours on, 12 hours off. In this study, they set up various artificial lighting cycles and found that the beardies switched from one to the other Pretty successfully. Pretty willy they, they were very, they? Yeah, they were, they were good at it. Yeah, it was definitely controlled by light. Um, there are different schools of thought about why it's beneficial for these lizards to increase their absorption of UV, UV radiation. One of these is that by absorbing more UV radiation in their skin, they actually defend the tissues that are deeper in their body from dangerous UV radiation. Mm which is what you were talking about with the baby salamanders. Yes, they have a layer which acts as your shield, essentially. You Precisely. Know, like a pair of sunglasses or sun cream. Exactly, it's basically... Yeah, natural sun cream it, is, is how it's acting. Yeah, you, yeah. I mean, that is the best way to describe it. It really is yeah. just sunscreen but built in. But um, what's quite interesting about bearded dragons is that actually these lizards have a little membrane covering their organs, which is called a peritoneum. Humans have one too. But in bearded dragons, their peritoneum is actually black, which mm. more or less stops the harmful UV radiation penetrating it anyway. So their organs are safe, regardless of whether or not their skin is changing colour. So that kind of discounts that theory that they're changing colour to protect their internal organs. Well, yeah, I suppose it, it does go quite a long way as long as there's a, a negative cost to having both systems in place. Well, I don't think it's just a redundant... Well, I mean, if that peritoneum is already stopping all the radiation, then stopping more radiation wouldn't convey any evolutionary benefit. I'm just thinking, what if they occurred sort of simultaneously? Yeah, I mean... What if it, is it doing all of it? Is it catching all of it? Oh, so you think maybe that there's a little bit left over, some residual UV? Well, we don't know how effective each one individually is, or as far as I know. The reference which they use in the Bearded Dragon paper is actually from a 1969 science paper by Porter and Norris. 
they measured the peritoneum of desert iguanas and they actually found that there was virtually no UV radiation penetrating the black peritoneum. So it's reasonably fair to say that bearded dragons have probably got the same mechanism in place. So what's the reason for the skin level? Well, that's it. That begs the question, doesn't it? Yeah. Exactly. So actually, there wasn't really a conclusion on that subject, because that's kind of something which they need now to look at. Mm. They only really discovered that, yes, they change over the course of a day to get more dark during the times when the sun might be hottest, or... Maybe not even that. They just found that they were darker in the daytime. Um, it could be to aid in absorbing warmth from the sun, but more experiments are needed to find out. They didn't really conclude anything from what I could tell. Yes, it was it was a good initial foray into bearded dragon colour change, and they found some really interesting stuff. But it does open open the door for a lot more research. I mean, even... They mentioned at the very beginning you can bring in all sorts of variables like uh, changes in acclimatization. You've got different populations to test, obviously. You've got different species of bearded dragon to test on top of that. There's a lot more to be done, but they've definitely brought out some interesting questions. Yeah, they've shown that there is, in fact, a circadian rhythm to a bearded dragon, which is a whole new element to their... I don't even know if you could call it behaviour, because I doubt if it's a uh, conscious effort... Yeah. Well, I think it definitely wasn't, because they did the control... There was a control beardy that was left during a period of time in complete darkness, and there was still a level of rhythm left over from where it was before. Ah, so there was so like a residual rhythm. It's not rhythm. seeing the light and being like, right, I've got to get darker. It's a bit more fundamental than that. Right. Excellent. Well, I really enjoyed reading that paper. I thought it was really succinct and uh, interesting. Yes, it was a nice, tight study yeah. of... Well, a very common species that people people probably know themselves. I think it's quite nice getting an insight into something that's, well, relatively common. From one Australian lizard to another, should we move on over to the Blue Tongue Skink paper? Yeah, let's. Okay, so this one was from the Journal of Thermal Biology, published in 2014, entitled Coloration Affects Heating and Cooling in Three Colour Morphs of the Australian Blue Tongue Lizard, Tilucra skinkoides. This one's by Gein and Johnston. This paper, really, really, really fascinating again. Blue tongue skinks, very cool lizards. They're massive. They're 40 centimetres long. They're monsters. Yes, it's it not when you, when you think of skink, you think of something, I don't know, 10 centimetres long, real fast, tiny legs. These guys are monsters. They're yeah. properly built lizards. They're truly beefy. And that, they're 40 centimetres long, snout to vent length. So that's yeah. not even including the tail. They could be... I don't know how long the tail is, probably 60 centimetres total length. But yeah, they're, they're seriously, seriously big. These are, again, terrestrial omnivores from Australia, much like the bearded dragons. They occupy a different ecological niche than the bearded dragons. These ones found in semi-desert, mixed woodland and scrubland habitats. They're not isolated to Australia either, unlike the bearded dragons. The uh, blue-tongued skinks are also found in New Guinea and Tasmania which is kind of cool. I did not know they were in New Guinea. That's yeah. very neat. Oh, I it's thought they were Australian endemic. It's funny, isn't it, how much cool stuff turns out to be from New Guinea? Mm, I'm not sure if it's surprising. No, not You really. just know New Guinea's a hot spot, <laughs> and it's great. <laughs> just a massive island full of cool animals. But, uh, yeah, they're called a blue-tongued skink, which probably mentioned, because they've got a ginormous blue tongue. Yeah, in terms of name, that's pretty uh, on the nose. 
Yeah, you don't can't go far wrong. What does it look like? Well, it's got this massive blue tongue. Oh, yeah, blue tongue skin. <laughs> Simple, easy. They use it as a defensive display. They basically just stick it out and it freaks out predators because they're not accustomed to seeing stuff that's blue. Well, blue is a famously unappetizing colour. Who wants to eat something with blue coming out of it? That's not, that's yeah. not natural. That's not normal. I'm struggling to think of any foods that I eat that are blue. Well, you probably don't. I think some weird brand of power energy drink would be your closest. Yeah, not a fan. Not a fan. Or a strange flavoured ice cream. Oh yeah, blue ice cream, horrible. Bubblegum ice cream is even worse. Yeah, there you go. It would work. This dispensed flavour would work on me. <laughs> so, um, yeah, they're from the family Skinkidae, which is basically the family of the skinks. If I remember correctly, it's the largest group. There are a few skink families, and then there's this one that encompasses the vast majority of skinks. Right on. Partly because a lot of the skink phylogenetic background hadn't, they just hasn't been investigated to the same extent a lot of other orders have. So they're still all families. lumped mostly into one big family. Yeah, it seems to be. I know recently the Malagasy skinks were all split up and subdivided and changed around. Right. And I presume that a lot of other skinks have yet to have that done. Hmm. Well, I wouldn't, I, I mean, I don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me if a lot of Australasian skinks were in this family too, then. Hmm. So, um, yeah, there's over 1,500 species in Skink Day, so... Yeah, exactly. That says an awful lot. I mean, I think Colubra Day at its height had something like 1,800, really? and we know how much that's been divided now, so... Colubra Day, for the listeners, is a massive family of snakes, which is kind of being steadily chipped away as we learn more about snake yes. taxonomy and phylogenetics to include less and less species, as we realise there's actually a lot more diversity than one yeah. super family can express. Yes, there are a slight conservation concern these blue tongue skinks as well because they've been found to eat the horribly toxic introduced and invasive cane toad around in the, the north of Australia. But unlike a lot of species there, I mean, it, it doesn't look good for them. They're, they are eating the toads and dying. But unlike some species, they are capable of tasting a toad and then learning to avoid them in future. There's a great little paper which I've got to sing the praises of by... Price, Reese, Webb, and Shine in 2011, entitled School for Skinks. <laughs> Can conditioned taste aversion enable blue-tongued skinks to avoid toxic cane toads as prey? So did they experimentally manipulate skinks and teach them cane toads were poisonous? Yeah, they gave them bits of, like, mushed-up cane toad and bits of non-mushed-up, you know, other control meat. And the skinks learn relatively rapidly to avoid the cane toad tasting toxic food. That's very cool. They trialled a similar thing with some kind of monitor lizard in Australia, didn't they? They have, yeah. The monitor lizards, they're, they're mixed results for monitors. Some studies suggest, yeah, they've, they've got pretty swift taste version. Others, maybe less so. And then there's a whole other factor as you start bringing these laboratory studies into the wild and... Basically, the dosage of toxin jumps up to such an extent that a single taste is enough to kill the no. species. You can't learn if you're dead. No. Fair enough. That's horribly savage. Cane toads are a scourge. They are over there. Hmm. I'm sure they do a, do a fine job in South America. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. I'm sure they do in their natural habitat where everything's accustomed to their poisonous. They know not to eat it, yeah. 
Yeah. So these skinks, presumably they're eating sort of juvenile cane toads. They would, would they tackle a full-grown adult? Oh, I doubt they tackle. I mean, cane toads get pretty massive. So I'm imagining. I'm imagining a sort of 60-centimetre lizard taking on a basketball-sized frog. <laughs> it would be a battle of the ages. <laughs> Should we get into the methods of using this paper? Some of the well, yeah. Let's get into what they're actually trying to find out. What's okay. what the uh, what the point is? So the idea was that three different colour varieties of blue tongue skinks would absorb heat more or less quickly, and then lose heat more or less quickly. Well, essentially, they were investigating not like the the bearded dragon's colour change in an individual, but colour variation over the species as a whole, looking at different morphs and whether that influences or changes uh, how they absorb yeah. and deal with light and how they thermoregulate, essentially. So they were looking at three different varieties of blue-tongued skinks. They had albinos, which are ones without any black pigment whatsoever. You've yep. essentially got a white and yellow skink with red eyes. Yes, they're kind of creepy looking, really. <laughs> I think they're quite cool. Do they still have blue tongues? Uh, oh, good question. Well, blue is a weird colour to make up it because is. it's sort of it's more to do with the structure of the underlying skin than it is to do with a particular pigment. So it might be that they were more lightly coloured, blue tongues. But you think they could still have blue tongues? In principle. In principle I would imagine they do, but if they had a white tongue no, I wouldn't be that surprised. Okay. And then the second type that they had were your normal wild types, the ones you'd find in the bush in Australia or New Guinea, as we now know. Yeah. And the final one was melanistic ones, which are essentially all black. They've just got an abundance of melanin, all that black pigment. They're the basic opposite of an albino. Yeah. Should probably mention what the intermediate wild types look like. They're kind of brown on brown, aren't they? They've got some nice tans, a bit of orange and yellow bars. Yes, they've got some nice, some nice bars to them. And I mean, to be honest, all three of the types are quite good-looking lizards, They're... especially the melanistic ones. Like, I you have, have a say, soft spot for those. They I look... have to say the same, yeah. I was yeah. I was really taken. I don't think I'd seen one before I saw... There's a really nice photo in the paper, which I can see you've just brought up, and it's them... It looks like they're all playing together, the three different varieties, <laughs> which is really sweet. <laughs> it's a great it's a great photo. So, yeah, check out this paper if you, uh, if you want to see that photo. Just coming back to the... Uh... Albino and the, the melanistic ones, they do seem to be super, super rare too. They were mentioning that the ones that they had access to might have been the only ones ever seen and captured successfully. And I'm sure they're going to make a rather expensive splash on the uh, exotic pet trade, but fantastic uh, opportunity yeah. for a laboratory study. It is very cool. And they actually got the mutant ones, as we'll call them, albinos and melanistics, from a guy who breeds them in captivity for as pets so yes. that's where they actually came from and they did say didn't they that they only occur at normal mutation rates in the wild so the only reason they are there they they, they don't they don't do well in the wild these two color morphs it would seem yeah well at least you don't see them yeah and really if we get into get into the paper it quite neatly explains why as well it does so what they did was they heated and cooled the three different colour varieties of blue tongue skinks in an effort to work out which ones warmed up most quickly and which ones cooled down most quickly. Mm. Their initial hypothesis was that the albinos would heat up least quickly because they are lightly coloured 
and the dark melanistic ones would heat up most quickly because they are dark coloured. Yeah, so they could take advantage of a more efficient thermoregulatory regime, essentially. Exactly. So the way they did this was they heated and cooled these lizards. The first thing they did was they took the individual lizard, they did them one at a time, took it out of its box, or some of them were kept in outdoor enclosures, Mm. and they waited for the lizard's body temperature to reach approximately 17.5 degrees Celsius. For heat flux trials, uh, which is seeing which ones heated up most quickly, they then placed the lizards under heat lights and measured the rise in their body temperature. For the cooling experiments, they essentially did the opposite, waited till the individual lizard was at 17.5 degrees Celsius, and then they just chucked it in a polystyrene box with some crushed ice <laughs> and waited for it to cool down. Yeah, I mean, it does a, it does a job, but it all just sounds, you know, it's, it's, it's very manipulate the animal. I mean, during these heat things, these animal poor skinks would just strap down to a table to stop them moving, because of course that's going to modify uh, how heat is absorbed or not and how it's given off, so they, those skinks would just trapped under some mesh netting and heated. <laughs> it all sounds rather rather brutal. I'm sure they were absolutely fine. Yeah, no. But, uh, They're pretty easygoing animals, and it doesn't sound like they were like that for long. No, no. I mean, it was bare minimum, wasn't it? Did you read about how they measured the body temperature? It's something that we've come across before. Just thermometer straight up the cloaca, wasn't it? Yeah, and yeah. for those that don't and know... And quite deep, too. Quite <laughs> like up to three centimetres up there. I mean, there you go. This. Cloaca is the universal opening that birds and reptiles have. It's like a one one hole does all the jobs type thing, and yes. that's where exactly where the thermometer was stuck. I guess it's similar to a human, really. You've got to get an internal body temperature because their skin temperature might be wildly different than their internal body temperature. Yes, especially when you're investigating skin color and how that's modifying internal body temperature. You don't want to have your temperature readings dependent on very surface level skin coloration that's no absolutely that wouldn't be that wouldn't wouldn't make any sense no that wouldn't have got to be published in thermal biology exactly so what were their results well essentially they found surprisingly enough that the albinos didn't heat up as quickly but your wild type and melanistic type heated up at relatively equitable rates had that higher absorption rate and uh Reached the so, desired temperature. Yeah. So wild types and the black ones heated up around the same speed, yes. which was more quickly than the albinos. Yes, the albinos were significantly... Okay, slower. and what about cooling? Cooling, we had the albinos and wild type being about the same, but then the melanistic one was considerably faster. Ah, so the wild type and the albino were cooling at the same speed, which was quite slowly. Yes. Ah, so you've got the wild type kind of getting the best of both worlds, wild, where it yeah. heats quickly and cools slowly. Yes. I mean, that's a wonderful position for a lizard to be in. It can be out and exposed for a shorter amount of time. It's going to have a more stable body temperature. And it doesn't have to put in that much effort to thermoregulate, or at least less effort to thermoregulate. It's fantastic, isn't it, when you get results to an experiment like this, and it just shows you that Mother Nature has come up with seemingly the best possible route, the most efficient way to have the animal, is the version that's existing in the wild. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense why the albinos and melanistic types are rarer, because they're not as good in general. They're, they're, 
essentially maladapted. They're too showy. They're too showy. <laughs> and plus, there's probably none left in the wild now because they've all been caught up for captive. <laughs> to be fair, if I saw one as black, I'd put it in my pocket. <laughs> Excellent. So, for this study, just a few little facts about what they were actually doing. They had 29 skinks, 8 albinos, 10 wild types, and 11 melanistics. So, a reasonable coverage. One of the cool things about the fact they did this in a lab is that they didn't have to worry about the wind altering their results, you know, the convection, heat moving around. It was a contained area, so all that stuff is minimised. They also did it, they did the heating and cooling experiments in a box within a temperature controlled room, so they controlled for the sort of ambient temperature as well. And um, also things like cloud cover, if they were actually relying on the sun to heat up these lizards, it would be nigh on impossible to get the sun to be consistent. Mm. It would just be... Well, yeah, you're dealing with cloud cover, wind shear, all sorts of extraneous variables that you'd have to, well, you couldn't control for and would just confuse and complicate your results. Yeah, you'd end up having statistical methods which were just beyond crazy, all kinds of covariates and bits and bobs. Yeah, one bit that they couldn't control for, which they do mention, is how there may be complementary genetic variation linked to, you know, say you've got a, a... mutation which is altering the skin colour, that mutation may also, or mutations that have come alongside it, may alter other aspects that would modify how they thermoregulate and how efficiently they thermoregulate. So an example would be if an albino for some reason had a bigger heart, it would accidentally lose more heat and that would skew your results because it would appear as though it was simply because of the skin when actually it had internal things related to those genes. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it could be incredibly subtle. To, I mean, there's very difficult to account for. Mm. The best you can do is getting all your skinks from a very close and similar population, which they do do. Credit to them, they did yes. mention that. The other thing that they were a bit worried about was that size was going to have an influence. So they found that the different colorations weren't more or less beneficial to lizards of different sizes. So regardless of size, the albino or the wild type or the melanistic had the same effect on their heating and cooling rates once you removed size as a variable. Yes. Which they did rather cleverly with some cool statistical stuff that we don't have to get into, but if you're interested, check it out. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to you know, bring up to round this paper off a few other examples from nature where people have investigated melanistic versus non-melanistic or slight colour changes. And although you would think they would confer some level of advantage in the wild, no, doesn't seem to make a blind bit of odds. We've got uh, common frogs, Rana temporaria, uh, that's a Vensis et al. 2002 paper. They find that those frogs with a larger black dorsal stripe Okay, they can potentially thermoregulate better, but you don't see any actual benefit out in the wild because they've got to make other trade-offs, presumably. Yeah, this comes back to what we were saying earlier where, yeah, they can thermoregulate better, but conversely, predators might spot a big, thick black band. Yes, exactly. There's there's always going to be a second level to it. A little bit closer... Well, I suppose actually both of them are quite close to home. We have common frogs around here, but also Viperoberis, a good old adder. There's a Forsman paper in 95 that investigate your zigzag pattern, your classic adder versus melanistic. And again, there does seem to be a little bit of a regulatory advantage for the melanistic snakes, but in the wild, negligible actual benefit. 
Which again makes a lot of sense. If there was a big benefit, you'd just have black snakes. Cool. So this paper generally well, one thing this paper did say about dark coloured ectotherms was that they actually might be more efficient during short periods of clear weather. So although these skinks mm. live in an environment which is pretty sunny, if you lived in an area where sunlight was quite rare, the ability to heat up more quickly and have a burst of activity might actually be a benefit. Yes, you suddenly start changing these environmental variables and a slight edge for heating might make a much bigger deal, especially if you've got another, I don't know, behavioural adaptation or something else to counter the cooling. I mean, you can certainly imagine a sort of situation where you had a burrowing lizard or something, a very dark one that could come out for a short period of time to heat up quick, limit its exposure to you know, the outside world and predators, but the cooling might not be as much of a big deal because it would go back down into its burrow with a, a more stable temperature and not have that trade-off. Mm, yeah, that's a really cool way of looking at it. I think um, one animal that I immediately thought of, because they're one of my favourites, is the Bolan's python, Somalia bolani, mm. which is this big old python from Papua New Guinea, and they're pretty much jet black for a lot of their body. They've got some like white, yellowy stripes on them, but um, these are like serious mountain-dwelling snakes. They live at high altitudes and they're jet black. So presumably in that environment where sunny spells, relatively infrequent, being black helps them enough. No one's done studies on this as far as I'm aware. Mm. Well, that's what would be interesting because all the wild studies of these, these melanistic versus not bring up you know, no advantage. My only criticism of this paper, actually, and it is a small criticism, is that they didn't account for whether or not the skinks were male or female. Because mm. these animals are really, really hard to sex. They're obviously all their gonads and what have you are inside, and it's externally, yeah. yeah, there's no sexual dimorphism. So it could have been the case that males or females thermoregulated differently for some reason. It's, I mean, fundamentally, they're the same lizard, but males and females internally do do different things. The females might need to thermoregulate more effectively when they're gestating eggs yes they might they might be used to dealing with different different aspects of their physiology at different times and if you don't account for that you don't know it basically the, the only example i can think of at the top of my head is uh japanese rat snakes i know although over over an entire active season males and females don't different aren't different in terms of average temperature it was only the females that reached the peaks and they seem to have a bigger range of temperatures which when you're dealing with a few degrees here and a few degrees there for something like this where you're very specifically looking at thermoregulation you want to account for that even if it turns out to be a you know a dead end and doesn't actually make a difference yeah precisely what's the scientific name of a japanese rat snake elafe climacophora <laughs> nice one sweet well i feel like we've done that paper justice i think so i think that's pulled out the majority of what they found out and it was an interesting little paper about a very cool very cool species of skink which i hope one day i do get to see one in the flesh because they sound badass yeah they are cool <laughs> it's always easier to read about animals which you know to be really cool oh yeah definitely shall i introduce the third and final paper yeah absolutely okay so this one's entitled breaking snake camouflage Humans detect snakes more accurately than other animals under less discernible visual conditions. This is another one from PLOS One, 
This time it's by Kawai and He. And essentially, what they were looking at is whether or not humans are better at picking out camouflaged snakes than they are at picking out other camouflaged animals. Yes, whether there's an innate ability to see snakes as opposed to something that's probably less threatening in terms of your your survival. Exactly. The other animals they used were what? Birds, fish and a cat? Yeah, birds, fish and a cat. And if you've seen the papers all open access, you can go and look at the picture they used for a cat. And it's the least threatening looking cat. (laughs) It's just a tabby sitting in a grass field. (laughs) So they used a pretty innocuous cat. And we're not sure what kind of snake they used. I couldn't work out what it was, could you? Well, it doesn't help that the photo's black and white, for one thing. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. And it's not exactly in the most ideal pose. It's just sort of a... Just sort of a blob of a snake. Yeah. With a black head. Weird. Very unusual snake. Well, it's not one we're immediately familiar with anyway. I'm sure someone will look at it and go, oh yeah. Yeah, if you know what kind of snake that is and you're reading this paper, get in touch. (laughs) And we'll we'll mention it on the next episode. (laughs) So the general idea of this paper is that humans' visual systems, what we perceive, uh, is sensitive to animals which are relevant to our fear. So if there's a logical reason why we should be afraid of something, then we're going to be better at spotting it because that way we protect ourselves from danger. So snakes fall into that category for two reasons. The obvious one is venom. Snakes can do us serious damage if they bite us. But even longer ago, so venomous snakes appeared about 60 million years ago. But 100 million years ago, primates were coexisting with constrictors that could easily eat them. So Mm. our ancestors have been dodging and ducking snakes for a long, long time. So that's why we are supposedly, that's the idea of this paper, they want to find out that we are better at spotting snakes because we've got good reason to. Yeah, they're investigating this, this snake detection theory, this overarching theory, where snakes are not just predating primates... But they're exerting a really, really strong evolutionary pressure on them. They're being properly selected for. Another interesting point is that humans form stronger associations between pictures of snakes and electric shocks than they do guns and electric shocks. Yeah, that's a classic uh, psychology experiment, isn't it? Get a bunch of people into a room, draw (laughs) pictures and electrocute them. (laughs) (laughs) It's really funny. But I think that says a lot, doesn't it? This this paper, like you say, it's from 1986, Journal of Abnormal Psychology by Cook, Cook, (laughs) Cook, Hodes and Lang. The Journal of Abnormal Psychology. Mm. Wicked. But yeah, it was entitled Preparedness and Phobia, Effects of Stimulus Content on Human Visceral Conditioning. So basically... Yeah, you are more likely to react to a snake and an electric shock than you are to a gun. Yes. I mean, this this is also not... We're just talking about humans here, but it's really not limited to humans at all. We have examples with macaques being able to react faster to pictures of spiders and snakes. There's a study looking at velvet monkeys being able to pick out partially obscured snakes, which is another neat, neat bit. This isn't limited to humans or even great apes. No. This is pretty widespread amongst primates yeah and this those studies they did on monkeys they raised the monkeys in captivity so that they knew they hadn't experienced snakes yeah. before and they still freaked out still about snakes. innate yeah. innate detection of snakes which is really neat and you, i think you said earlier maybe you didn't the name for this is snake detection theory mm. originally coined by isbel 2009 a book by the title The Fruit, the Tree and the Serpent, <laughs> which I think is rather rather apt. Lots of dissertations written on this subject, I don't know. Oh, yeah. 
But yeah, so what they did, what did they do in this? Well, essentially they had their photos, as we've mentioned, of a fish, a cat, a bird. snake and a bird. Yeah, and they basically overlaid these photographs with noise, just what is essentially static, a very good and consistent way of generating, well, basically creating a way to obscure the animal without having to deal with actual photographs of partially obscured creatures or real camouflage, which would be very difficult to quantify. They use this technique called random image structure evolution, another catchy, catchy title. Well, RISE. Yeah, RISE is great. That's a great little acronym. Which kind of morphs or degrades the image without fundamentally changing what it depicts. Mm. So the original image is always back there somewhere, but it's more or less difficult for us to perceive. Yes. And like you say, if you were to look at one, it basically just looks like an image of a, a snake Maybe covered in sort of weird granules, and it gets steadily harder to depict. Well, it's like, like TV static. That's the way I I saw it. Is it's just random static yeah. over your image. It's, yeah, it's not biased one way or another. It's not like okay, we've got a photo of a snake behind a tree, but we've got a picture of a cat behind a bush with different sized leaves, and because you've got all these different elements that can alter how people perceive objects. If they're hidden by big things, small things, different shapes, different colours, you've got all this variables, confusing factors that will just get in the way. This does ni- nice and neatly make it concise it and repeatable. It. Yes, yeah. yes. It does a very good job of bearing it down to we are testing specifically one aspect of people's visual uh, system. Absolutely. And what they did was they took the original image, and then they created 19 more versions of it. So you've got 0% modified with Rise, which is just the image as it appears, as it was taken, all the way to 95% modified. Well, not, not quite as it was taken. They are oh, grayscaled yeah. and controlled for uh, luminance, contrast, and various other image variables. But other than that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. As no, well, no, well said. Yeah, they, they weren't, they were all standardised initially. Yes. Uh, But yeah, so then they had 20 images ranging from 0% modified to 95% modified in uh, 5% intervals. And these represented the different levels of camouflage that the people, it was people they used in this study, that were supposed to pick out. And they showed all these images to 20 undergraduates with the hypothesis that the snake would be spotted, spotted more easily, even when more camouflaged than the other animals. Yeah. And uh, was were their results consistent with that? They were, weren't they? Yeah, they were perfectly consistent with your snake detection theory. There was there was very significant results that showed that compared to the other animals, people would spot snakes or be able to say that was a snake as opposed to anything else with a higher level of coverage, random noise coverage over the snake. It was more obscured, but yet they could still tell it was a snake. Absolutely. Quite a conclusive result, really. Well, it's quite nice to actually look. I mean, they have a nice figure in the paper of the different steps, 1 through 20, of the different level of coverage, and they're saying people will start picking out the snake around step 7 or 8, where it's 65% coverage. And you look at these images, and you can sort of... You know, it's quite difficult to see the snake there, but you can sort of pick out maybe a little bit of scalation, maybe a little bit of shape. And it's quite remarkable, really, if, you, if you're only shown that image for a, a very brief amount of time, yet people are significantly better at spotting snakes. It's, no, it's impressive. It's yeah. impressive how powerful we are. And it does say a lot about things like snake phobia. There's a pretty, pretty decent justification for that. It really is, at some level evolutionarily innate in us to have yeah. a perception 
even if necessarily it's not fear in everybody, it's seemingly being able to perceive them, which would suggest that. Well, I like the idea of it should make snakes easier than other animals. If you go surveying out for an animal, you should be fine finding snakes. Frogs and stuff's much harder, but I don't know. Everyday practice in the field, snakes are still damn hard to see. <laughs> yeah, I can definitely relate to that. So previous research has actually found that snakes are more easily spotted when they're in a S-bend position. So sort of like your generic striking pose. Mm. This um, is something that would be nice to see this study repeated again. Exactly the same methodology, but with a variety of snake species, maybe, and a variety of snake poses. Well, that's one thing the software is supposed to do, is completely remove any element of different posture. don't understand quite how they do that. Yes. Well, I think what they were talking about there were these... No, no I think the, the, <laughs> the trick was, that because it's being interpolated randomly... Yeah. And if you've got a high enough sample size, a significant proportion of those testees, or people looking at the snakes, will have example images where the snake structure or shape is completely obscured, whereas others might not. But it's it, there's a big enough sample size to account for that. Ah, uh, okay. So the interpolation process of RISE takes away any features we would previously associate with snakes, like your S-bend or an elongated portion of body or whatever. Yeah, I am not entirely clear how that works, because you look at the... I don't know, maybe... Maybe maybe it would be easier to see a worked example. See a worked example, but you look at the images, and the ones that are like very obscured, the first or really the only bit of snake element you can pick out is this scalation pattern. And to me, if you if you had a, a a snake with less clear scales, surely that would be less clear to see in the interpolated obscured photos. Yeah, you're quite right. So by that logic, snakes with smaller, more granular scales would be harder to spot using this software. Or perhaps, yeah. Or at least certainly, I don't know, maybe even keeled scales with a bit of overlap. There's a bit more blend. A bit more and there's less. Yeah. They, sort of, they, they say they account for contrast and stuff like that, but... You can see the pattern. I don't quite understand how that could be completely discounted. Hmm. Basically, I'd be satisfied if the study was repeated with that varying and see how that alter it and, and you know explicitly test it. Yeah, and that would actually be interesting, even if that sort of stuff is accounted for in a study and it's completely I'm chatting absolute rubbish. It would still be cool to see if it varied per species. Because, I mean, we know that some species are going to be a much greater threat to primates than others. And yeah. they definitely differ considerably in morphology. Yeah, I mean... But whether it's enough to make an evolutionary... You know, be that subtle you know, evolutionary selection. It certainly knows. would be cool to compare venomous and non-venomous snakes in this way. Yeah, or they'll all just be counted as snakes because... Evolution's a bit of a blunt tool at times. It's <laughs> like snake freak out. Yeah, and you know it's not going to be that big of a energetic cost to avoid a snake compared to if you don't avoid the snake and it does turn out to be venomous. It would be a lot more energetically inefficient to blanket run away from any large mammal. Well, that yeah, maybe <laughs> <laughs> ah, a cow, bolt, a little bit more subtle uh, yeah. detection. Yeah, brilliant. So yeah, another. Excellent and completely freely available paper, plus one. 
Breaking Snake Camouflage, recent article from, I didn't think I said, it was published in 2016. So not even not even had its first birthday yet. That's a great paper. Go and check it out if you're interested in uh, how our visual system influences the way we perceive snakes. Right, so should we move on to the last portion of the show? Our oh, new species. Our final segment, yeah. Our, our species of the week. Yeah. Or bi-week. So what is our species of the bi-week then, Ben? Well, it's a snake. Good. And it's a snake which exhibits some rather dramatic colour, surprisingly enough. It's Aetula nasuta anomalar. Aetula nasuta anomala. Anomala. I would say so. What did I say? I I fudged it. I, <laughs> I like the way you said it. <laughs> anomala. Either way. Oh no, it's not. It's not. It's not anomala. It's definitely I, anomala. I, I, I took it to become. I took it because it was kind of an anomaly. So well, I kind of started saying it like that. I don't know. I think that's what it's meant to be. You can freestyle it if you want, though. Well, no one really knows what the Latin exactly. uh, accent is. Exactly. it is. There's just as much likelihood that the person who's speaking to you will correct you as it is that the person who's speaking to you will pick up the way you said it, no matter how wrong it is. <laughs> feel really just embarrassed to, yeah, that they said it yeah. differently. Oh my goodness, I said I said anomala, and it's actually anomala. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there I are. <laughs> I'm sure there's some, some, food, some guidelines that yeah. I'm just not privy to. Yeah. And my free, freewheeling, freestyling Latin pronunciation is... Just a loose cannon. Yeah. But yeah, like you say, the cool thing about this snake is that it's got sexual dichromatism, which, like mm. we were saying earlier, sexual dimorphism, this is that males and females are different colours. And it's rather striking. I mean, there's a big difference between males and females in this yeah. species. Um, before we get too far into how cool the colour is, we should probably mention this is a paper published in Zootaxa um, entitled Ayatilla Nasuta Animala, Annandale, 1906, Squamata Colubridae. Resurrected as a valid species with marked sexual dichromatism, and it's by Mohapatra, Dutta, Kar, Abdit Das, Murthy, and Deepak. Yeah. So, what can you tell us about Ayatollah Anamala then? Well, they look like your typical vine snake. This very pointed nose, quite strange-looking eye, uh, quite a slim snake, growing up to around sixty centimeters, snout to vent length. I mean, when I say elongated head, head length is two point nine times its width. That's pretty extreme. Say that again. Head length is yeah. two point nine times their width. Wow! So it's, it's like a, a little point, pencil head. A little pencily vine snake. Yeah. Where are they? They were from India, weren't they? India, yeah. Yeah, I did read that the only reason this study happened is because the authors stumbled across a specimen near their university campus in North Arisa University. Yes, and then double checked stuff with some museum specimens, and then did all the legwork and bang. Guess what? There you go, resurrected species. Yeah. So it was first described by Annandale in 1906, but they thought it was a variant of Dryophid Mysterizans, which is now called Ayatollah Nasuta. Mm. And you can see the similarity. I mean, Ayatollah Nasuta, you can hear it in the name. The nose is this big, long appendage. I don't know if actually anyone knows why they have that. Is it something to do with their vision? Is it for aiming down or something? I think there's a lot of different theories out there because it's not just these vine snakes that have it. There are species found in... The islands around Madagascar. Surprisingly enough, another Madagascar example for me. But there's uh, Do you Laha. Like Madagascar? Yeah, it's a great place. <laughs> <laughs> there's Laha. Sorry, there's Langaha Madagascariensis, which I think is one of the most sexually dimorphic snakes out there in terms of tail width, and they have this bizarre protrusion tail on their width nose. Or length. 
Did I say tail whip? I yeah. meant tail length. I just imagine really the males have got a big fat blob of a tail. Look at that. No, really, really long tails. And bizarre, long, sort of stick-looking noses. But it is different between the two sexes. But so the males have a longer nose than the female. This... So it could just be a demonstration of fitness. Yeah, if they've got energy to waste producing this freaky-looking nose. It's interesting as well. I know there's examples in chameleons where... Both the males and females have this, like they call it a rostral appendage on the end mm. of their nose. And they think that where there's lots of different species of chameleons in close proximity, one theory is that they have these appendages so that the different species can tell each other apart. So you can make sure you're mating with the right species. No, that makes a lot of sense for chameleons. Because it would be a lot of wasted effort if everyone looked alike, but some of people you can compatibly mate with. Yes. Doesn't hold true for Madagascan leafnose snake though, because they're the only... Pretty sure that the only might be one other species on the island, I think, and that has shifted from subspecies to species a couple of times, I feel. But regardless, it's a very, very limited genus, so there must be a different reason for them. Yeah. Well, not, not that I know. No, well, probably not that anyone knows. Perhaps a topic for another another episode, Rostral Appendages. We can clearly talk for hours about this. <laughs> anyway, the um, for this study, with the old uh, Ayatollah Nasuta Alamala, they used 27 specimens for their morphological analysis. The easiest difference, if you're out in India catching snakes with pointy noses, the quickest way to tell them apart is that the new subspecies, the appendage on the nose is actually covered in tiny little scales, whereas Nasuta is just one big rostral scale covering Mm. the whole thing. So that's quite an easy way of telling if you're close up. Yeah, that does provide the not halfway up a tree and you're looking for a... (laughs) Telephoto lens or something. He's like, oh, some sort of green snake right up the top there. You know, it feels like a privilege if you get that close to one of these guys. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. But um, like you said, the males and females different colours. The males are green and the females are brown. Yeah, and the juveniles are grey brown. Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, there was some suggestion that maybe all the juveniles are grey brown and then they undergo a colour change, which would be pretty cool, ontogenic colour change. Yes, and it would be nice to know, well, when that occurs, is there, if there's something that prompts it, is that changing along with sexual maturity, is it prior, after? Just be a lot of nice little, not overly dramatic studies, but just nice little natural history studies. And it's worth mentioning that you can see why it took a long time for these to be recognised as a species, because other species of Ayatollah, I'm thinking of Ayatollah prasina, they come in all different colours. You can get orange ones, yellow ones, green ones, grey ones. Yeah. And, and they coexist as well. They do. Yeah, so, it's um, not separate populations or anything like that. They're just a rather wonderfully... Polymorphic. Polymorphic snake, yeah. Anyway, a little bit more information about this resurrected subspecies. It's a diurnal snake, active during the day, particularly the morning and afternoon. They seem to rest during the heat of the day, which, having been to India, I can empathise with. It gets pretty toasty in some areas. You need a good siesta. Yeah, exactly. And they eat lizards, which is, um, I mean, that kind of in keeping with their being diurnal. You know, they're, they're around when the lizards are predominantly... Well, quite a cla- I feel like that's quite a classic vine snake attribute, staying high in the trees, going after arboreal lizards. Yeah, very cool. Um, and they've got kind of a weird eye. They do. Horizontal pupil. Yes. Which isn't something you see. Kind of goats have it, don't they? When I, when I, or goats have it, like a it, keyhole, it's, maybe. It's sort of reminiscent of a snake version of a goat eye. Yeah. Yeah. But I did a little bit of reading about this. And um, apparently it's because they've got a fovea, which we also have. Which is basically a dip in the retina, which is filled with just cones. Um, which allows really, really great colour vision. So these snakes have got pretty intense colour vision. 
So does that quite heavily suggest that they're primarily visual predators? I, would... I do know that a lot of these guys have a rather bizarre version of the tongue flick. Oh, yeah. And they just hang their little tongue out and just wiggle it around yeah. <laughs> for a while. It's not particularly uh, elegant. Yeah, I've seen Ayatollah Prasna do it, and yeah. it's weird. I'm not sure if that is part of a threat display or whether that's kind of some technique that they have. Oh, yes, I suppose we have only really seen it when we've been up in the snake's grill. Yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> they do weird stuff. I mean, Prasna go crazy when you catch one. They, you know, they puff up, they gape. Sort of bluff strike, yes, that was bite. something in this paper. You see, half the photos of yeah. these vine snakes are just sitting there with their mouths wide livid. open. You're just not used to seeing snakes with their mouth open that frequently. <laughs> no. But yeah, so this fovea, very few snakes have that structure, which I thought was kind of an interesting little tidbit about them. Yes. Um, uh, I got that information from uh, Rasmussen, 1990. Did a paper on the retina of Samodynastes pulverentulus. So check that out if you're interested in fovea's yeah, of course, we'll keep all the uh, all the references used throughout in the show notes, so they're all nice and neat and accessible if anybody wants to chase up and read more about these rather bizarre, bizarre animals. just It's worth looking the paper up just to see the pictures, to be honest. Yes, yes. Really cool snakes. Well, actually, throughout all the papers, there have been some pretty good photos. Uh, yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah, possibly with the exception of the bearded dragon one. I don't know if there's many pictures in that. I don't think there was a single picture of a bearded dragon, but... Google Images, bearded dragon. Job done. <laughs> yeah, if you're interested in what... You probably know what they look like anyway if you're listening to a podcast about reptiles. <laughs> I'd hope so. Yeah. Cool. So um, I think that pretty much ties up that paper about the new Ayatollah. Yeah. Anything else to add on that? I think that wraps us up rather nicely. Cool. So um, hope you've all enjoyed the very first episode of Herpetological Highlights. I've had a really good time doing it. I think there'll be an episode two. I hope so. They're satisfying to do. Yeah. I feel like I've learnt bits. Reading these papers is always is always enjoyable and gives us a chance to branch out from our usual cubby holes of research into, well, fine snakes and bearded dragons and things that you just don't read about normally. Yeah, yeah, it's been really fun. So um, thanks for listening. And uh, if you've got any questions or anything, get in touch. Our email address is herpetological... No, it's not, is it? It's herphighlights. Herphighlights. At gmail. Dot com. Yeah, that's herphighlights at gmail.com. Herp minus etological highlights <laughs> at gmail.com. <laughs> Get in touch if you've got any questions, thoughts, comments. If we got anything wrong, please tell us and we will do a section in the next episode sort of um, clarifying our mistakes. Yeah, I think corrections and clarifications would be a nice, nice thing to include. Don't want peddling rubbish. No, precisely. So... Yeah, thanks a lot and uh, catch you next time. Yeah, thank you for listening.